Hey everybody, we're in the green room for Disrupt TV. We are not talking about chat GPT or banking crises, but it is St. Patrick's Day, so happy St. Patrick's Day. We're gonna go in reverse order. We're gonna introduce everybody and uh, really quickly tell us where you're coming in from and what you're talking about today. John Reed, what's going on? Well, actually, we're going to talk about Silicon Valley Bank and the financial crisis, but we'll, you and I will argue about that for a minute, and then and then I'm going to tell you whether I think generative AI is overhyped. The answer may surprise you. Ooh, okay. Ooh. We'll stay we'll stay tuned. <laughs> Melissa, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about? Hey there, Melissa Swift, coming in from New York City. I am here to talk about my new book, Work Here Now, Think Like a Human, and Build a Powerhouse Workplace, and how you can make work not suck. So I'm pretty excited for the conversation. Oh, that's always an awesome topic. Yeah, very, very cool. And you might be seeing the future for us. Uh, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about? Yeah, I'm dialing in from New Zealand. Uh, so it's bright and early in the morning. We're one day ahead so far in the future. So I'm going to be talking today about the new talent economy. There's nothing like a you know banking crisis to, to, to foster a conversation around a new talent economy. So yep, Silicon Valley banks. First and foremost, up, up on the topic. Very, very <laughs> hot on. topic. So we're going to move so, beyond that one. No, not at all. Hey, and we're joined with our awesome producer, Elle, my co-founder, co-host, Bala. And of course, Elle, do the honors. All right. Three, two, one. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. Selling everybody wants to rule the world. Ray's a regular television business and tech contributor on Fox Business Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC, turn on a T-Day, including weekends, and you'll find Ray. In my opinion, he's one of the top viewers to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> hey, thanks a lot. I'm with Vala After, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence, and executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational, insightful tweets when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce. You can find him speaking on business TV outlets, such as Bloomberg posting insightful analyses of the show like ZDNet, and maybe writing a future book. So who do we have here to kick off our awesome show? As we know, it's about our guests. It's not about us. And uh, who starts? Ray, the best and brightest CEOs come on Disrupt TV, and there's no exception here. Ann Fulton is the founder CEO of Fuel 50. 
Fuel50 is an AI-driven talent marketplace platform that fuels internal talent mobility, workforce agility, employee engagement, talent retention, and bottom line impact within leading organizations all around the world. Anne is recognized as a talent futurist. She has grown the Fuel 50 to more than 100 Fuelies. I love that. Raised more than $36 million and supported world-class brands like CVS, John Deere, United Nations, Coca-Cola, Fidelity, countless more. Anne is the author of the career engagement game, Shaping Careers for an Agile Workplace. Anne has worked for 20 years, started when she was 15, as an organizational psychologist. <laughs> you can follow Anne on Twitter at N-A-N-N-E underscore Fuel50, F-U-E-L-5-0. Welcome, Anne, to Disrupt TV. Oh, great to be on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for Thank having you, me. Anne. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here, right? You're kind of taking a look at what's happening in the world economy and that kind of drives future employment trends, future work trends, what's actually happening in that space. Tell us a little bit what you're seeing from your side of the world and of course, the rest of the world as well. I mean, I think, well, it's been a, a, an absolutely incredible roller coaster week. I mean, we, we said we weren't going to talk about it, but honestly, SVB. Oh, we're just kidding. You know, <laughs> so a signature, uh, you know, and being a technology company right now with, a, you know, 130 folk around the world, you know, it, it was it was an interesting week. We can't say that we weren't impacted. Not a lot of sleep last weekend. <laughs> but however, you know, we've come back, um, you know, nothing like a treasury um, announcement to support a bank and, you uh, you know, a buyout for one pound in the UK of HSBC. <laughs> that was all very helpful for our global operations. Uh, here we are, you know, another week to survive the tail. But I think the reality is that, you know, we're all facing a new um, economy regardless, right? There's all sorts of predictions out there as to, to what we're going to be weathering in the year ahead. You know, it's, uh, it's just a realisation for me now that we're speaking to a startup CEO who had a very uh, a roller coaster, I'm sure, uh, a week of emotions and angst and anticipation. Can, can you talk about, you know, what you were trying to, how did you get the 135 Fuelies to, to, to stay calm, stay focused on the customer, stay focused on the jobs to be done? Uh, it must have been quite a, quite a week of communicating with clients and employees and partners. Can you take us through this? And we don't have to talk a lot about it, but this whole journey of, of what happened in the last week or so. Yeah, a absolute roller coaster, right? You yeah, know, yeah. first up, you know, and, and most of it was at the weekend. So, yeah. so you know, oh, that was the brutal part. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> Friday, that was Friday crazy. Yeah. Friday afternoon, we're like, oh dear, you know, and like everyone else, let's let's see where we can protect our money. I mean, we were in transition of moving banks anyway, so so we were very, very, very fortunate and minorly impacted, but enough that we had to consider, you know, customer payments. Where were they going to pay us? Because you know, it's our um, bank of record. Uh, we you know, um, wages. You know, how are we going to meet payroll? Um, in certain geographies where where Silicon Valley Bank was involved, and uh, yeah, so so it was just watching every every announcement, putting into place multiple multiple backup strategies, <laughs> remaining agile. You know that, that's uh, one of our um, business theses is workforce agility, and wow, we had to be super agile. But um, yeah, we were ready, and I think there's been some amazing things that have actually now come into place. Uh, to secure the future of the business. So yeah, there's there's the Treasury announcement, super helpful, um, FDIC, and and then HSB 
HSBC buyout in the UK, all of those things giving us, you know, good confidence and assurance. But putting in place, you know, um, sure. an insured cash suite now means that, uh, you know, all dollars in the bank are, you know, absolutely insured and protected. So we're in better shape than we were last Friday. Yeah, happy to hear. Yeah. Happy to hear that. Go ahead, Ray. Yeah, no, it's no, it's definitely there, right? And it also speaks to that notion of that we don't necessarily have the right talent in the right place. Well, when you take a look at the SVB scenario, I mean, the management team was pretty unprepared for anything like this. If you look at the board, none of those folks had any banking experience. I mean, it was pretty, pretty rough. And I mean, you're thinking a, a bank in Silicon Valley can't find the right expertise. What can a normal company do or even a startup do, right? So, so what are you seeing in that market? Like, where's talent management headed? What are people doing in that space? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, you know, and, and that's the reality is organizations, you know, need agility more than ever. So, you know, this is why, you know, we, we're um, really anticipating that we need a new talent economy. And this has been coming at us since the pandemic, you know, where, um, where, where we've seen, you know, huge catch cries for change and, uh, you know, the macro trends driving this new talent economy are here to stay so you know we've got the workforce demographics you know we've still got baby boomers retiring and not enough folk entering the workforce so we we regardless of what's happening economically we still have a talent crisis talent shortage so organizations have really got to prepare their, their you know their workforce for the future um i also think there's a new social contract now at work, right? Uh, and I think it's a bit like, you know, your book, Ray, you know, you and I are writing on the same thing. You know, there's new expectations in the workforce, there's new power plays coming. Um, and, and this has been here for a while. It's been driven by the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter. You know, the employee voice is really ascendant. It's important. It cannot and should not be ignored. So, you know, there's some of the things that we're seeing, you know, that are, that are um, you know, increasing the catch cry for this new talent economy. You mentioned uh, the word agility, so important, adaptability, uh, being able to understand both the macro and micro conditions surrounding your business, your community, your stakeholders, customers, employees, partners. Uh, you uh, at Fuel50 are using technologies like AI to create uh, a talent marketplace that's based on informed uh, insights. Uh, and and uh, given the, you know, the, the last few months, of the AI craze. And I think John, our final guest, founder of Digenomica is gonna talk about that. What are your thoughts about uh, top strategic imperatives in this new talent economy when, when we see such incredible acceleration of certain technologies within, for example, AI, the generative AI movement that really brought everyone's attention to life in October of uh, last year, the company was founded in 2015, OpenAI, but it was only a few months ago with a simple prompt that the world woke up to, wow, look at this, this power that's at our fingertips. What does that mean in terms of impact on talent? Um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, AI has been in play in the talent arena for quite some time also, you know, so since 2015. And, you know, if we're wanting to match people to opportunities, which is what we do, you know, matching them to futures, to, you know, learning, to, you know, to, to everything that they need to do to create their future, of course, there's AI in play, right? Um, and But I think that we need to, you know, absolutely carefully use AI for good. And that's kind of in our business DNA is that we're using, you know, the AI to be a applied for good and you know the 
a friend of mine, Dr. Robin Erickson, wrote a great paper on the shades of AI, which I thought was hilarious and funny and also very, very valuable. And that shades of AI kind of talks about, you know, how far do we go, you know, down the um, AI spectrum to, um, you know, to ensure that we're, we're, we're being fair and inclusive and transparent and all of those things that sometimes, you know, the black box side of AI is, is not delivering. So the way that we think about it is that we've got to make sure that we're being very careful in the way that we're using AI. Um, we've got the, um, you know, the New York AI audit um, regulations coming in, which is nothing but good, we think, for our industry. So, so, so the way that we apply AI is very much in an assisted AI so that it's helping um, people make great decisions about their future. So whether it's an employee, they use AI to, to, to create all their assets, their skills and their talents, scraped from LinkedIn, et cetera. But the employee is still in the driving seat, as, as is, you know, the talent managers and organisations, because we need to prevent harm and bias and, uh, you know, um, any any lack of fairness into talent decisions. It's so important. And right. employees are not going to let us get away with it. <laughs> right. At my company, uh, you know, we have an ethical and humane use of software chief executive who's responsible for making sure that any anything that we add to our software goes through the proper vetting in terms of is this for the betterment of society before the first line of code even at the design stage we go through that due diligence with 135 fuelies uh, and you being the ceo how much time do you encourage all of the fuelies to spend being more comfortable with machine learning, large language models, AI, is is, it a, is there an expectation at the CEO level that all employees of Fuel50 have some some level of knowledge in terms of this these new emerging technologies? Uh, yeah, I, th I think probably more at a macro level. I mean, that every employee yeah. needs to be learning, right? I mean, that's what we want, is that we want um, employees to be agile, to be reskilling, to making sure that they've got the right skills um, and capabilities and knowledge to help them, you know, um, um, operate in, in both now and into the future. And employees are so hungry for that. So 70, yeah. 74% of employees want to take ownership for their own learning and reskilling and, and whatever that might mean, right? Yeah. Not necessarily just about AI. But, you know, yeah, understanding how chat GPT is going to impact them and their jobs and what can we leverage in a really intelligent way. So, yeah, I think it's really important that organisations, even in this economy, are, are ensuring that they've got a learning organisation, a self-sustaining organisation that's driven by, you know, from the bottom up, from the employees themselves, and just enable them. And that's where technology plays a beautiful part of the equation, right? If you enable every employee to, to understand what are the five smartest things that they can be investing their time in from a learning yeah. point of view, upskilling in that regard, getting validation from their peers around oh, how yeah. they've upskilled, you've got this incredible talent intelligence happening across the organisation that means that that organisation is going to be more resilient through that's whatever awesome. the economy throws at us. That's right. Cool. You know, that's a really, really good point, right? Yeah. And let's talk about that in the context of recruiting, retention, reskilling, maybe rebounding, getting people coming back, right? Yeah. Uh, but but where, where's that playing a role both in, you know, the type of work people are focusing on, right? Especially in a world where we're going to see more and more AI augmenting humans or working side by side with humans. Uh, how do you see that? How do you see that model fit in, in each one of those areas? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I'm going to start with retention, right? Because, um, you know, even though organizations are off, at the moment optimizing, right? Have I got the best fit people right now for my business needs? And are those people 
um, you know, committed and engaged and, and do I want to retain those? So, you know, I think it's really important that we start there. So retention is still the bottom line. Organisations want to keep their best. You know, you, you know, if we're getting into survival and thriving mode, we, we absolutely want our best people optimised. And I'm, I'm saying not optimised as in, you know, <laughs> right-sizing the organisation. I mean, optimised so that each and every individual is reskilling for the future and has got the right skills and assets at their fingertips to be able to to uh, do that really efficiently and powerfully and not wait for, you know, something coming from the organisation down. You should all learn this. I mean, it's got to be faster. It's got to be more targeted. It's got to be personalised to each and every employee across the organisation. So, you know, that's how we see those two pieces, um, you know, uh, fitting into the equation. Ray, love the rebounder, you know, and yeah, we, we you know, I, I think all organisations, I'm sure you're seeing it too. We welcome the rebounders, right? With open it's arms. It's like, oh my goodness, you know, come back. I and, mean, they're uh, boomerang back. We'll take you, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, so other, other than uh, other than being having an yeah. awesome CEO, how does Fuel 50 recruit the best talent uh, to turn them into Fuelies? I, I think, you know, fortunately for us, I mean, we're so mission driven, right? We are on a mission to create great futures for everyone around the world. So it's so mission driven. That's kind of contagious. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it started in the early days that, you know, we've got this attraction you know, um, strategy, not even strategy, it just exists across the business that people are wanting to come and join that mission. So we hear it time after time. And there's all sorts of reasons that people are bringing, you know, to their work. But, uh, you know, so many of them talk about a career derailing moment that might have impacted somebody on their family. They never want to see that happen again. They now see this mission of being able to make a difference to the future of people. So, you know, whether it's engineers that help us build out this product with beauty um, and doing coding for good, not harm, you know, as you were kind of saying, right. you know, a few of That's our talents started out in gaming industry, you know, um, you know, building an addiction for poker games, right? And so they <laughs> love their work now, right? We can have an addictive product that's engaging and, and um, but it's doing good, not harm. That's terrific. My, my final question to you, um, you know, often when we get startup CEOs on the show, we know we have many startup CEOs that watch the show. What advice do you have for someone who has the aspirations like yourself of building a great company? Um, any, any lessons learned you can share that would, uh, hopefully help these CEOs uh, stick to their mission and vision and purpose and build a successful company like yours. Yeah, I mean, I, I think after the week that we've had, I'm just going, keep calm and keep going. Keep calm <laughs> and keep going. You know, what? That, that is a superpower, especially at, 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 at the, certainly the last week or so. That, that's Never give advice. up. You know, there's always solutions there, you know, chip away, you know, so, so, so that would be, you know, our learning is that, you know, holding to the mission, holding the values, you know, do it the right way for you and your people and, you know, you, you will get there. So, but yeah, I'm not into the give up camp ever. No problem. this week. There's lots of those moments on the journey. It's a roller coaster. Well, yeah, no, I mean, look, I mean, talent's fluid, business models are fluid, everything's very dynamic today, you know, and, and I think the one thing that you can do is you can take control of where you are with your talent and uh, be able to do, you know, actually bring them in, retain them, keep them excited, keep them focused on mission. I think everybody, uh, you know, will benefit, especially customers and, you know, the whole ecosystem around you. So, but this has been yeah. great. Thank you so much. We're for the, Ann Fulton, CEO of Fuel 50 with the Fuelies. You can follow them on Twitter at Ann underscore Fuel 50. And thank you so much for spending your early morning morning with us on Saturday. Thank you, My pleasure.
Happy St. Patrick's Day, everyone. Thank you. It's always awesome to have guests on Saturday join Disrupt on Friday. <laughs> They're futurists. They're futurists. Yes, you know? yes. Our next guest is still Friday. Uh, our next guest is Melissa Swift, uh, leads Transformation Solutions for Mercer U.S. and Canada. Melissa is responsible for Mercer's efforts in the areas of workforce transformation, human resource transformation, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and workforce analytics. Melissa has helped build businesses in the ESG transformation space, including launching sustainability services and clean tech practices at Deloitte and conducting two landmark carbon credit uh, derivatives uh, trades at Deutsche Bank. Melissa is a recognized thought leader on the subject of future of work in the pandemic era. She has been coded in all the media outlets you can imagine, all major media outlets. She's the author of Work Here Now, Think Like a Human and Build a Powerful Powerhouse work, Workplace. You can follow Melissa on Twitter. She must have been an early adopter. M-E Swift, M-E-S-W-I-F-T. Welcome, Melissa, to Disrupt TV. And yeah, if you get a chance to unmute, that'll be great. We're so happy to have you here. Um, Hi, Melissa. And, and welcome, wow. yes. Wow, very, very excited to be here and more excited to be speaking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no problem at all. Hey, we're really excited to talk about your book. And one of the interesting things we noticed inside the book was really about works monsters. And there are a lot of monsters, right? And so, and so the one I think that actually a lot of people are challenged with is really the anxiety monster. Talk a little bit about the anxiety monster. Like, how does it like manifest itself and how do we slay it? <laughs> so. so it's interesting. I'm a big fan of if you can't name the problem, you can't solve the problem. So when I yep. started thinking about what goes wrong with work these days, I, I really did think about it like there's there's actually some monsters there, right? There's some gnarly stuff. So the work anxiety monster, it's basically that little voice in your head that says that, oh, people are slow, people are lazy. And it says to you, you're slow, you're lazy. Mm, and that little yep. voice, it leads us to make bad decisions right? We keep driving people sort of like faster and harder. And it, we don't actually think about the ways that human beings get work done better. And we fill our days with activity that doesn't always tie to business outcomes, right? Like if we wonder kind of, why are we all so overloaded? And there's all this great academic research that work actually has gotten harder over the last few decades. It's not just a feeling that we all have. Work has in technical terms intensified. We are doing more units of work per unit of time than we used to. And it's that anxiety monster voice in our head saying, you know, you got it, you got to speed up and yep, you're lazy. Yep, Everyone's lazy. Yep, yep. And it just, it, it's like we need cognitive behavioral therapy as organizations. Wow. Do these monsters appear more frequently in a hybrid work environment? Are you more susceptible to seeing the boss baby customer monster or the anxiety <laughs> monster? I want to learn more about that second monster. But do you think this, this notion of balancing work at home especially if you're with family, with kids, with parents, with pets, and then going in the office and finding it less populated as in the past. So you don't have those random collisions with a mentor or a possible sponsor. So early in your career, you haven't found someone that can turbocharge your career or even put your mind at ease that these monsters aren't, aren't, aren't here to harm you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the, the hybrid environment kind of, it, it almost like gave some quiet for those monsters to really yell, right? That to your point, you know, if I'm a manager, Whoa. I'm not 
seeing people working, right? And if I'm an unsophisticated, insecure manager in particular, right? My anxiety monster gets very loud at that moment. But similarly, if I'm an employee and I'm not feeling, you know, totally secure, I'm not feeling that total psychological safety, that anxiety monster, again, it gets very loud, you know, and that it encourages performative work. Like, let me send some emails. Let me schedule some more meetings. I got to show everyone what I'm doing, right? Let me move my mouse, right? So my light goes green instead of yellow. You know, we've all been there. We've we've all done it. It's a thing. It's a thing. So, yeah, in kind of the quiet of the hybrid environment. And, And I think your point about early in career workers is very well taken because they don't have those cues to calm down their anxiety monster. They don't have that track record of, I know my way of working works. I know I can deliver results. They don't know that yet. And so again, that's a silence that that anxiety monster can can kind of yell into. Melissa, why did you write the book? I mean, it seems like I can feel the passion in you describing portions of your book. So obviously this this was something that you wanted to do and I can see the deep commitment to it. Was, can you share with us why you wrote the book? Nope. Yeah, nope. It's, it's funny. It started out in my mind as a very different book pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, it was going to be this funny, jokey tour through all the kooky stuff we do to try to fix work, right? Okay, <laughs> sprints, open plan offices. It's so goofy and fun, right? And then the pandemic happened. Yeah, and I found myself in this very profound place of I was leading two series of seminars on how to work during the pandemic. I did not have a clue how to work during the pandemic, right? And I'm like, trying to teach my kindergarten, literally. You didn't have experience in a once in a lifetime event? What do you mean? (laughs) Right, and I'm like instructing the world with this voice of authority, right? So I had this moment of, and my, I talk about in the book, my computer's sitting on this table and it's like gonna fall off the table. It's a hot mess. And so I had this epiphany about, number one, we need a language about what's going wrong at work. Because we all had this feeling, right? We could all, you remember that time, you could feel it so palpably, but we didn't have a language to talk about it. So I was like, number one, establish, I got to establish the language to talk about. The language is so amazing in this book. (laughs) That was a very conscious thing about it. Again, if we can't name it and it's not like, you know, sort of third grade level of of naming, right? People aren't going to remember it. But then number two, the thing that clients, because I'm, you know, on top of everything else, I'm a working consultant. Clients always ask me, where can I get started? Can you just Mm. give me some practical places to get started? So, you know, the book's full of places to start. It's not, well, you know, I've mapped out the whole journey and this is how it ends, because that would not necessarily be a credible claim. But it does give you 90, 90 starting points. That's awesome. It does. And, and one of them that I'm really interested in is the workforce copy machine. What is the workforce copy machine? And, and, and why is it so funny, actually? <laughs> so. so it's, you know, it, it's one of those things where I started thinking about why the term future of work sometimes gets on my nerves. And I was like, Ooh. it's not the inherent concept. It's the fact that we never get there. And I started thinking about you know, especially as I was researching things like the history of human resources and all this stuff, and I'm kind of going, we seem to just kind of repeat the bad stuff over and over. And that's where I came up with this idea of the workforce copy machine. So it's things like, you know, let's say you go to hire a person and they're like, okay, well, what wreck are you going to clone? Okay, you just use the term clone, Clone. right? You're going to copy paste somebody from the past into the future, the job of the past into the future. 
Similarly, think about how we reward leaders in organizations. And especially in, in publicly traded companies, we're not rewarding you for daring and risk-taking. We're rewarding you for consistency, right? Do not screw it up. And mm. factors like that just kind of copy-paste the past right on to the future. And, and you know, they're, they're structural things. We can get in there with our little wrenches and, and fix them. But we have to be aware of how those mechanisms basically keep us from ever getting to the future of work. Your subtitle starts with think like a human. <laughs> so can you, can you shed some, how can, how can we better think like humans uh, or make human centric decisions about people for people? Well, yeah, so some of it is, I think, being a bit humble about the constraints we're actually under. So there's, there's a couple of different sets of constraints Right. You know, number one, and I'm sorry, this is going to be sacrilegious for this show, but technology doesn't always work perfectly. I'm, oh, I'm, we no. agree. <laughs> really we completely agree. We completely so agree. Come on. <laughs> no, but, no, but so actually what's kind and human centric is to just have contingency plans for if your bright, shiny new technology doesn't work exactly right. Because what happens is humans end up kind of jumping in and filling those gaps. And those are some of, again, some of the most stressful, overloaded moments in the modern workplace when you, the person, is frantically trying to cover for a technology that, that didn't quite work. Another kind of vector of, of thinking like a human and making human-centric decisions is literally just thinking about human kind of like neuroscience and physiology. You know, so for instance, uh, there's great research out of Stanford that says that we're basically not that productive after about 50 or 55 hours a week. Our brains wear out. We can't work oh, that wow. Well, right. Wow. How many of us work so many more hours than that? And so really thinking about if that's your actual window of productivity, how do I get the right work into that window? Because, you know, companies are, are paying people for, you know, a full 30 or 40 excess hours sometime during which the, the person isn't actually producing anything. I think sleep's another great example. Right. So we all fly around and we globe trot and we end up sleep deprived. And again, research, I, someone is being pointed to, I, I don't know. It's, it's red. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So I've but, never heard about this. Being, being, there's a point of sleep deprivation when it's the same as coming to work inebriated. Yeah. Right. So I've heard about that. I've not, never experienced it, but uh, you know, from what I know, no, I was kidding. <laughs> apparently it's a thing. Right. But so thinking about some of those kind of things where we just, if we accept our human constraints, and we say, okay, well, you know, what do we do? And the good news is there are things we can do. So for instance, right, globalization has created a whole class of sleep deprived executives, but with more asynchronous work, you can get around some of that. You don't need to be in that meeting at 11 PM, right? To catch up with another region because you're doing a true follow the sun, right? You're working asynchronously. And so there are, there are ways to correct for all of this. Some of it's gonna be unavoidable, but some of it's fixable. And I think that's part of what I wrote the book to, to dig into, you know, what are all the little places we can fix so we don't have that dark sinking feeling of work mm. not quite working. Did you find anything that was surprising to you in the process of writing the book, perhaps even change your mind or your thesis on a particular aspect uh, in the process of investigating and interviewing and writing the book? Yeah, I think the most shocking thing I, I dug up was about performance management. 
And so performance management, you know, we always think it kind of dates back to like the crumminess of the industrial revolution of like, you know, okay, my machine turned out, you know, 10 pieces of metal or sure. whatever. It comes from slavery. The principles of modern day performance management date back to the management processes of absentee slaveholders, that it only became wow. important what each person produces if you thought you owned that person. And once wow. I saw that, and it, there's great research. It was these poor accounting researchers who were just trying to research the history of accounting and stumbled on kind of this nightmarish information. Um, but it's very well documented by the researchers. And once I saw that, you really, you can't unsee it. And it makes sense. Like when our, our Mercer researchers have done a ton of research about performance management, there's always like glitchy stuff. And it's not always like demographic discrimination or something mm -hmm. like that. Sometimes it's like how long your, your manager has been with the organization, right, affects your performance score. There's always noise in the equation. And once I saw that research about the history, I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense. Of course it doesn't yeah. work. It comes from slavery. What a crummy practice. Wow. So, so the big shock was we have broken performance management frameworks at, 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 all, at all companies. So, 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 okay, what do we do? You, right. You're challenging right. dominant logic that's been in place for hundreds of years. Right. What do we replace it with critically? No, no. What right? do we because replace what it you with? don't want to do is you don't want to get smushier, right? Because that gets worse, especially from like a, a sure. DEI perspective. The smushier it gets, the more unfair it's going to get. That's the wrong direction. So I, I think what's interesting is a lot of organizations are trying to move back toward mapping collective business outcomes by teams and really looking at that. And I think that's a bit of the unlock of what is the team able to accomplish rather than what is your individual performance. In some ways it's answering a different question, but I'm very encouraged by that trend because the outcomes of the team, those tie to the business results. Sure. And that's the connection in a lot of cases that we've lost. Wow. Wow. Yeah, no, we, we, we definitely see that. And I mean, and there's different types of, uh, the, the way we look at work and organize work um, is, is gonna change because of how we actually work with machines as well. Right. And, and that augmentation, like you may be interacting with a bot. My bot might be talking to your bot. Right. Uh, we might be in a room of like different types of mixed mode environments. And, and the thing that struck me in your book here is really couples counseling for humans and technology. Mm -hmm. um, this may be real. Right? Maybe I may have to sit in with a performance review with me and my bot. Hey, the human's underperforming again. You know, what are we going to do? <laughs> I mean, you joke, but a lot of humans are managed by bots already, right? If yeah. you drive an Uber, you are algorithmically managed, right? You oh, work yes, in a you warehouse, are. you are yes, often you are. algorithmically managed, right? Yep, yep. So it's a very interesting, this idea of couples counseling for humans and technology, because it, it really, we have to be consciously thinking. And I think this is something that you guys spend a lot of time kind of thinking about. How do we actually navigate that relationship between humans and technology? So, you know, I, I don't want to be horrible about it. So the humans win, right? We, we're at this moment with technology. <laughs> hey, That's inherent bias. We have a bot resource group for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like the sorcerer's apprentice right you know with all the brooms and the buckets going everywhere yep, yep, that, yep, yep. that we're a little bit not necessarily in in control and that it's interesting i mean one of the statistics i dug up in the book is that almost one in five people have left a job to go to a job with a better technological experience 
And that's, well, that's unreal. But we don't. But not everybody can have that experience, or can we make sure that everybody has that experience? Because I mean, we're starting to see, like you know, the jobs that are what we traditionally call not humane, right? Highly automated, highly repetitive, right? Those jobs will definitely go to machines. But will there be enough work for everyone else? Always is the fear, and then the other fear is your algorithmic management, which is actually happening. So, so yeah. drop. Let's go a little deeper into that because I, I think that's going to be very interesting to uh, for folks to understand where you might see that future. And yes. I just saw I just saw a, a, a tweet yesterday of Chat GPT four listing uh, the highest probability jobs that will be displaced by machines uh, like accounting, proofreading. It, it wasn't. It, there was a lot. Some of them were what we would consider creative work that made the top twenty or thirty list. But it was interesting to see, you know, uh, like call center professionals or ranked at the top. Uh, or, or, or college application essay writers. <laughs> yeah, or, or podcasters covering technology trends. <laughs> Slightly worried. No, but I, I, you know, I think, I think part of what's, what's interesting there is that, you know, we've, we've been on a long automation journey. Yep. Right. And as things have gotten automated away, we, we continually find new things for humans yes. to do. Yes. But I think what's interesting and the big pivot we're going to have to make in the workforce in the next few years, probably, is that we are not necessarily great at selecting for rewarding and cultivating the skills that are going to be most paramount in a highly automated world. Right. So all of the sort of empathy, understanding, ability to truly listen and communicate, right? Not just generate text. Currently, organizations are, are really crummy at, at selecting for and, and promoting and rewarding those skills. So that, to me, is the kind of sharp right-hand turn we're going to have to make. Yeah. yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, any any uh, 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 advice to, um, you know, um, uh, people success, human uh, resource uh, professionals that are watching the show in terms of, you know, adapting to these new norms and being able to think like a human. When you advise your clients or you're advising transformation room within Mercer, what advice do you have, especially to maybe line of business leaders, chief marketing, chief information, folks that have budget responsibilities and also leading large organizations? I would say two things. I think number one, you know, set some priorities. Um, I vividly remember sitting with the leadership of a tech company and somebody, one of the leaders was yelling at the CEO, you can't have 37 priorities. And it wasn't a joke. They actually had 37 priorities, right? So set some dang priorities, right? Do a few things well. Yeah, but then also reconnect, even if it's a scary journey, reconnect the work to the outcomes. Because that's what's gone wrong, especially in modern knowledge work, is that there's activity, activity, activity. And we don't really connect it back to business results. So that's the journey. If I'm a business leader, make sure all those people doing all that work, make sure that work is going somewhere. It sounds so silly, but when you really kind of get under the hood, oftentimes that's what's not happening. And, and do you yeah, do was, that with well, understanding the jobs to be done and the measurements associated to progress? Mm -hmm. How, is it the methods and the measurements that give you alignment in terms of your work? to your team, to the line of business, to the company, to the ecosystem. How do you create that? How do you link the work to impact? Yeah, well, first of all, you have to kind of take the activities lens off, right? And that's where shutting up the anxiety monster is so important, right? Okay. So okay. if you take kind of needing a certain level of activity 
out of the equation, right? Like my Outlook calendar doesn't have to be full. We don't need, you know, take that activity view away and then truly reverse engineer off of business results, which again, in most organizations has not been done in a very long time. Okay, if this is what we need to do, not, you know, I need to hit these activities, which particularly in functional roles, like, you know, yeah. a CMO, a CIO, right? It can get very activities driven. Pull it back to business results. And then don't be afraid to redesign the work in large and small ways. And sometimes it's like, again, being willing to tweak somebody's job on a week to week basis. Don't think of that job description as set in stone. You know, the everyday stuff can be very powerful. I like the what reverse engineer. Uh, we had uh, uh, Jeff Basio's chief of staff on our show, Colin Breyer, and we asked him about Amazon's uh, uh, work methodology and principles and outcome-driven culture. And he said, we work backwards. We identify from a customer all the way to what we need to do to achieve said income uh, outcome. And it was, it was, it was uh, reverse, like you said, reverse engineering how you contribute as an individual to the outcome you would like to see uh, that would hopefully delight your customers. Go ahead, Ray. Yeah, just uh, no, no. I was, I was just saying, like you know, the the fifty strategies for you know groups, the fifty strategies that you have for um, you know uh, you know for teams. I mean, organizations. I, I think they're great. I mean, it's it's really just trying to find the right matrix for the right scenario, and I think it's really wonderful how you provided that. So thank you very much. So oh, thank you. It was fun stuff. Congratulations yeah. on the book. And congratulations on the book. Yeah. So we're here with Melissa Swift, author of Work Here Now. You can follow her at M-E-S-W-I-F-T and get her book on Amazon, published by Wiley. And of course, something from Mercer and the Mercer Thought Leadership team over there. So thanks a lot and happy Friday. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Thank, Thank you. you happy Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you. We have so many great authors that come on the show. I'm still waiting for Reed's book. But okay. Um, our final guest, <laughs> one of the most prolific writers we ever have on our show. So someone's got to just nudge him to, to, to write a book. Uh, John Reed, co-founder of Diginomica, is our, is our guest. Diginomica is a uh, media analyst property designed to serve the interest of the enterprise leader in the digital era. Launched in 2013, Diginomica consists of a team of writers and analysts based in the U.S., Europe, who share decades of experience on enterprise business computing. But John himself began building enterprise communities only one year after the World Wide Web was founded. So he's been a lot. <laughs> For those historians, you know that's 1994. Uh, he's a weekly columnist, analyst, and enterprise and startup advisor. He's Ray and I's favorite guest. In fact, he's a first ballot Hall of Fame inductee in Disrupt TV as soon as he retires. You can follow John on Twitter at J-O-N-E-R-P. Welcome back, John, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, guys. Ray's probably glad we're doing this virtually so I can't spill coffee on him like I did a couple days I, ago. I wish you had a video <laughs> so, of that. Yeah. <laughs> All good. Don't even worry about it. Don't even remember. I only remember that when you tell me. So. <laughs> hey, remember the last guest we were talking about sleep deprivation and like work? We're about yes. to find out what happens when a guest that comes on strong is sleep deprived from West Coast travel. What happens to the show? So let's find out. <laughs> All right, let's do this. What do you want to well, talk yeah, about? Yeah, where do, you, where do you want to go here? I mean, we, we've got bank failures, right? And you've been looking at this. I mean, what's the impact of tech companies? Like, what, what do you see that happening? So, so yeah, let me talk about this for a sec because, but before I do, I just want to say there's a little bit of an irony in asking me about financial markets and tech because no one knows more about that in our industry than, than our host, Ray. Yep. So, 
sure. read his blogs. He, you know, his his global market analysis is about as good as you're going to get from people on the enterprise side of things. So, putting that disclaimer aside, I I do have a few takeaways, and I'd love to hear what you guys think of this because I want to sort of give you some big picture thoughts on this. The first is that I've noticed this whole frenzy around the blame game for why this bank went down. And I think it's a complex thing. There's a lot of different factors, but I've been very, very frustrated and embarrassed by the hijacking of this whole thing for political purposes. I mean, just to give you an example, if, if Ray and I were arguing about this, I would probably put more blame on selfish, greedy venture capitalists that sabotage their own bank, whereas Ray probably would put more blame on regulators and interest rates and things like that. The good thing about Ray and I is we'd have a really nice conversation about that, but we're never going to agree and it's never going to solve the problem. And so I found it really disturbing that people were happy perhaps to see something fail in order to prove a point one way or the other. And I think the really big lesson why that's so dangerous is because the lesson here is that we're all connected. We're all networked financially. The, one thing goes down, the ripple effects affect everything. And that's the big lesson from this. And, you know, even when you look at like Credit Suisse, for example, Russia, China, Middle East, all those areas have an impact on, on, on a bank, right? And, and so we have to figure that out. And, and we need people who are about solutions, not, not about play, placing blame and political maneuverings. That's one thing. The second, of course, is that the system is a little more fragile, maybe a lot more fragile than we thought. A lot more fragile, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really huge point. And, um, I don't think we're at the edge of the abyss, but I think we got a couple looks down the abyss the last couple of weeks. And what I would say to that is that if we go down, we're not coming back up. This is not like 2008 financial crisis. If this system goes down, I don't want to think about what would happen next. So, so we need to come up with smarter ways of doing this going forward. And, you know, I, I was reading about, for example, um, you know, uh, this, Breck CEO, who is fundraising more than a billion in loans for startups. This was before everything got resolved, but the point was like, let's get in the fray and find you know bridges for these people so that so that the you know the worst case scenarios for people don't happen. But like that was the kind of thing that really inspired me. Like let's get into the fray and try to like come up with better approaches and better systems. So to me, that's like a a really big thing um, is finding solutions that work. And so. Uh, you know, uh, will this affect the, the next wave of innovation? I think that's that's really one of the other really important points we have to to think about. But we really don't want to want to fall back on like, oh, let's have a few huge multinational super banks so that we can avoid these problems. That's really a, also a very bad case scenario of, the, of creating a few too big to fail banks. We need smaller banks, innovative banks. We need banks that can lend out micropayments to developing countries and communities. And, and so I think this idea of like, oh, let's take shelter, but you know, now we're feeling really good about putting all our money in this huge monster bank. That's not the right approach either. So those, those are my big takeaways. What, what do you think? I, I mean, I, I completely agree on, on, on the facts that you know, too big to fail banks are going to be too big. Their, their business is not lending to communities, right? You have a small bank in the Midwest that knows how manufacturing and agriculture, right? They know exactly what to look for and, and how to support those communities. You have a, you know, banks that are on you know, handling biotech. They work very differently than the ones that handle like high tech, 
right? And, and I think there are specialty banks and credit unions that are very important. They play an important role. Do we need a thousand community banks? Maybe not. Do we need like 500? Definitely so, right? And I, I think we're going to see that. Um, as for your point on where we agree or where we don't agree, um, I think we agree we need a solution. Right. I think that's yeah. a very, very important piece. Right. I mean, if you look at the bank board for Silicon Valley Bank, none of those people on the board ever had any financial yeah. banking experience. I mean, that's a huge issue. The regulators at the Fed, I mean, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank in San Francisco, like sent warning signs, but didn't really do anything because the COs on the board as well. Right. So there's a lot of intermingling. And, you know, uh, you know, if this was a bank sitting in the Midwest that went under, they wouldn't have had the same political clout to call their you know, congressional offices to say, come save us. Right. So so there's yeah. so many factors here, which is yeah, but pretty the, the, the counterpoint in that is what John included in his article referencing Dave Kellogg, who's an entrepreneur, knows startup communities. And Dave said these banks weren't sitting on uh, the top of pile of incredibly complex, thinly traded derivatives like CDOs or CDO swaps, they were sitting on top of a mm. pile of long government bonds. This isn't 2008. This is not Lehman Brothers. This is something new. So, yeah. you know. Which gets to my point about the fragility of the system, right? right. We, can't, we can't say this was just an FTX type of thing where nothing was backed, but where it was all like phantom stuff. Like right. This, right. this is real currency backed and we still ran into this problem. And I think we have to treat that as a huge wake up call that yeah. we need to we need to have better solutions to this. And one other point that gets a little closer, uh, and I want to get to generative AI because I've got a lot of content for you on that. But yeah. one other point there is around that Silicon Valley Bank, I'm not a huge venture capital person myself in certain ways, but I do have to recognize that that was the heart of the tech startup community. And those of yeah. us who care about innovation in the enterprise and beyond need to recognize that this wasn't just a bank failure. This was a failure of a network that supported a lot of people. And so there has, I believe, been damage done to that network. And those of us who care about innovation need to figure out what to do about that. Yeah, yeah. And the, the VCs don't provided. The don't discount the bank run. I mean, everyone now has a supercomputer in their pocket. You've created yep. a frictionless banking engagement model where a couple of buttons True. and I'm pulling out or putting in. This, Indeed. This couldn't happen in 2008. Uh, you know, so technology has made it so that, you know, in a, in a Friday afternoon, a tweet from a prominent so-and-so and you could create Movement, a unlike, a movement yep. like you, anything you've ever seen. Um, it's a social media bank run. Uh, but but the thing is, we, we also have a very low trust of institutions coming out of the pandemic, massive low trust on institutions. Yep. And, you know, but this is really the, fate, the Fed rate hike. I mean, if we look a year ago, um, the Fed rate was zero. <laughs> I mean, we went four and a half, almost five points, right? This is ridiculous, right? So this is some of the impact. Um, and I... I will counter the argument here that um, most of the banks were smart enough not to buy long-term securities when interest rates are rising. These guys were not mm -hmm. doing their job. You just do not do that. And in a normal sure. situation, what you would do, and this is going to sound really bad to folks, is you would let the bank fail as a lesson instead of create this moral hazard that the U.S. government's going to continue right. to bail them out. Now, on your point on innovation, that would suck. But the VCs are still funding companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The VCs are still yeah. funding the businesses, but it's the bank that provides the operating capital. And I think yeah. that's the important thing to understand that you don't have that operating capital available. Like Chase isn't yep. going to do it, right? The two big to bank fails are banks are going to do it because that's just not their job and they're not good at it and they get yield from yep. something else. Yeah, before that's we go the to, scary part. Before we go to generative AI, my final thought on this is just that 
we, we can no longer view this as something that, that specialists handle. We all need to embrace a bit of responsibility for understanding these problems, not just where we put our money, but where our friends put their money and, and, and where we invest and how we support institutions and how we support local and regional banks instead of turning our backs on them. Anyway, But there's room to create a Ray bank right now. Now I money in 12 banks. Now I know. I, I do exactly. have money in 12 banks, actually. Do you really? And Ray, actually. And Ray, please don't tweet when you pull it out, okay? Because yeah, you can yeah, start yeah, the next yeah, bank yeah. run. So. <laughs> yeah. No, no, okay. no. But, but, right. but big, we do, hype, we, we, big hype around generic hype. AI. Is it big hype? Hype or not? Yeah. Yeah, well, yes and no. You know, I, I was realizing that I take this, I take I take generative AI really, really personally. And I, I was trying to think about why I have such a big chip on my shoulder about it. And I realized there's two reasons. One is that like, I've I've been a creator all my life. And like 15 years ago, I, I knew someone who fell out of my life professionally and she checked my LinkedIn profile. And she was like, oh my God, your career, that's amazing what you've done. And I, w and I was thinking like, well, because 15 years ago, I had a much more conventional enterprise career. And I met some people who were doing things differently, people like you, Ray. And I was like, I'm jumping into the deep end here. And and I've had a really unconventional and rewarding career. And I think the two of you, I think of as well, like Ray, there, there, this phenomenon is, there's a whiteboard phenomenon to creativity where, where you take everything you've learned and you clear it and you create a whiteboard and you say, this is my dream. And and Ray, you did that with Constellation. Yeah. And Vala, you've invented a career unlike any other that I can think of. And, and, and that's a creative process that I believe is sacred that I want every individual to undertake and and to embrace and I think these tools threaten that a little bit in the sense that people think oh chat GPT I built a website with this technology I did okay you did but you didn't build a good website okay no, yeah. and, and 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 how many bad websites on the internet do we have right now like do we need you know thousands more bad websites no we don't now that doesn't mean this technology isn't like important and I'm good in I'm gonna get into why it is but that's, I think, one reason why it bothers me. And the second reason that there's so many misconceptions right now about the limitations of the technology. And so I've become a bit of an AI geek trying to undermine like some of the misconceptions that are being promoted. But you want to know what's really interesting is that you know how the enterprise got totally exposed a lot of times by being slow and sluggish, like, for example, with the iPhone and the user experience of mobile. And it was like, why is the enterprise so crappy on user experience and tech? Well, I think generative AI is the enterprise's moment to provide some leadership around what actually works with this technology. Because as it turns out, when you do this stuff on the open internet, it's a garbage in, garbage out phenomenon. And what's fascinating about enterprise use cases that are emerging now is that there's much more of a focus on, on, on limiting the data to more specialized data sets yeah. for very specific purposes and actually advancing this whole conversation and dealing with some of the limitations that we're seeing with some of the like hallucinations and bizarre stuff that's gone on with like the, the open internet version of this. So I think it's a really interesting chance for the enterprise, ironically enough, to take the lead on this. And so, um, so, so the short version is, is, to, is, is chat GPT overhyped, I would say. In, it's not a business revolution, it's a business evolution. And that's a really, really important distinction um, because AI has kind of been in the business for a while. Yeah. But I will say this, I think it is a cultural revolution. And and I think that is why it's having such a big impact is because this is a little bit of an iPhone moment 
for AI in a broad sense. It's not as universally adopted as, as the iPhone was, but it's a little bit of that moment where the average person is having this light bulb of like, I could write it. I could write my college essay with this. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I could write a letter to a collector who's yeah. breathing down my back with this. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I could maybe write a living will with this. Yeah. And, and, and I think that is, you know, give open AI a lot of credit for like, like not necessarily having the most advanced technology period, but putting it out there in a very accessible way. And, totally, and, and one, totally. and I will say, and this is nothing, this is not an attack on you, your views, Ray, but I will say what's interesting is how this has also exposed the folks that decided like the Zuckerberg and Accenture's that I've been criticizing for deciding that metaverse web three tokens, blockchain, that whole thing was the next big thing. There's a big lesson here because Zuckerberg's getting on the AI generative train now yeah. and backpedaling on metaverse. Why? Because adoption is what dictates what the next big thing is, folks. That's, and, and that's John tweet and that. that's what adoption we're is what dictates what the next big thing is. That is exactly. super profound. And I'll tell you, I'm at Border Cafe restaurant with my son. He's 12 last night, and he says I had trouble understanding my math homework. So, Dad, this is unsolicited. Dad, I went to this site called OpenAI, and I typed the equation. And what I liked is it explained to me how the math works. So then I went and typed my social studies essay assignment, and it gave me great logic, great insights. So I'm like, well, what do you think about it? He's like, Dad, it's like, it's like a calculator for writing. And I'm yep. like, wow. He equated the text prompt as a calculator for writing. Um, and I thought this, if a 12 year old, without dad pointing him to the site, I've always told him to go to Khan Academy uh, for, for math and learning, but I didn't ask him to go for chat GPT. But I'm like, my God, a 12 year old on his own understands and appreciates and has adopted this virtual tutor and described it in language that only a 12-year-old, but it made sense to me. So, so yeah. Bala, you should, you should blow his mind now. It, it show him the prompt marketplace. It gets even better. You have a library for the calculator. It I gives you all really, the prompts. I'm not sure if I, I, I love the <laughs> I praise them up and down for using it. My wife was like, hey, listen, I don't want him to be like, I don't want him to have tools to help him write. Because both my wife and I believe that you read to improve your writing, you write to improve your thinking. So if you take shortcuts with writing, you're taking shortcuts in how you think. But oh, I no, love the fact that he's using it. You know, I don't, it's such a catch twenty-two. I, I don't, you know, but it's a sign, like you said, adoption defines the next big thing. Right. Twelve-year-olds are going to be messing around in tokenized ledger. No, they'll be prompt libraries. Absolutely. <laughs> now, 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 for the enterprise angle, we won't have time to get into all the use cases today because I know we're just about to run out of time here. But what I do want to point out is that what what's going on in the enterprise is fascinating because it's it, they're they're grappling with the fact that this this technology is going to is going to reach some limits in terms of scaling and parameters. And the long story short is that what the enterprise is doing is trying to make better use of it by not scaling higher and higher, but putting in guardrails, yes. using iter 
so-called iterative AI, which allows the users to continually improve the data training, which doesn't occur right now with ChatGPT, by the way. And a big part is injecting company-specific data, also grappling with explainability, which Workday spent a lot of time on this week uh, in their AI ML Summit, saying, we're going to explain to users what you're seeing, where the sources came from. You should have come to our developer summit. You should have come to our summit. There you go. Yeah, and we yeah. sent someone else there who wrote about it, but that's another topic. Um, and, 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 and so what's, what's really interesting is all the use cases that emerge from that from an enterprise perspective. And it's everything from things like um, helping people um, do – ChatTP is really great at like summarizing things. So it's like if you give it 5,000 job descriptions and say, make my best job description for like a DevOps manager, yeah. boom. It's going to give you a really good one. You're going to get yeah. a great head start. So yeah. it's really great at that kind of stuff. Of course, there's all kinds of medical things that are really powerful when you think about feeding all this – really good, not garbage information from the internet, but awesome medical information into one place and then allowing it to generate diagnostic materials. But the key thing to remember is the reason it's an evolution and not a revolution is because humans are going to have to remain in the loop to keep this on track. But the good part about not being a revolution is it buys us all time, time we're going to need to plan for the implications of this technology on jobs, talent, automation, everything else. So I have to stop there. John, you have described a, a, a unicorn startup because given the volume, yep. veracity, and and, and, and and this just sheer amount of new content that's being generated, this data-driven hyper-automation to test and vet the output is an entire yep. class of, uh, yep. you know, so generative AI QA platform. So, uh, and, it's, and the scale has to be machine-to-machine level uh, because you, it's just too much for humans to sequentially look at the output and decide whether this is going to be something we're going to publish on our website or we're going to share in an email template in sales or how we're going to it's, it's going to replace a knowledge-based article in service an entire exactly. platform that actually filters the, the and improves the signal to noise ratio that those are companies that are going to be booming as a result of yep. this it's amazing it's amazing it is yeah no we're definitely seeing a brand new era here i think it's really interesting to see what the implications are we need to have um, more than a 20 minute segment with john yeah that's another takeaway so, that's one other takeaway so yeah. <laughs> but hey yeah. here with awesome john reed co-founder of diginomica more importantly you can follow about john erp and read diginomica if you want to know what the heck is happening in the enterprise is probably the most comprehensive uh media uh, outlet in terms of enterprise tech. So thanks First a lot, John. Ballad, Hall of Fame inductee. First ballot. Thanks, Alice. <laughs> Catch you next time. Thanks, John. Uh, oh, so it's just good. you and me. What's going he's, on? He's so good. <laughs> he's so good. Uh, you know, all the guests were amazing, but you know, it's uh, uh, it's 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 great to think about. You know, we started with a CEO of a company that's using AI platform for matching the best fit in terms of candidates. Uh, and uh, an incredible new author talking about thinking like people. Isn't it amazing with all this technology, the secret sauce is to humanize how we work and how we produce products and services. And of course, John, who's, who's amazing. Your, 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 your uh, final thoughts on our three extraordinary guests. 
Yeah, I think, you know, despite all this talk about generative AI and machine learning and where we're headed with automation and robotics, uh, the human factor is still very important. Uh, we have something about 4 million uh, workers exit the workforce. Uh, that's why we are having such a hard time finding people, right? It's not because it's a booming economy. It's because we have a declining population market and people have just chosen to leave the workforce. Uh, this is the same thing that happened pre-pandemic at 2019. We we're still short on workers. Uh, and I think we're going to continue to see this for quite some time. Two trends will happen. One is we're going to see the advancement of automation. You already see that today in small ways. You get to a McDonald's and you order by Kia. You come through the drive-through, it's probably a contact center that's offshored, right? Or it might be ChatGPT in the future, just translating your orders to text, uh, your voice to text into orders into the order entry machine. So you're going to see more and more of that acceleration across the board. But that means the people that are left that are working, uh, we're going to have to figure out different ways to motivate them, different ones to take care of them. And that's really what Anne and uh, Melissa were both talking about. Melissa's was actually pretty interesting in the fact that in her new book, uh, what we're seeing is really, I mean, a lot of this is our state of mental health, our, our mental well-being, how we view things, right, dictates a lot about our performance. And, and if you can actually figure that out, uh, then we can actually figure out how to work here in the present and, and do a good job. Uh, but, you know, John, John has it right. Generative AI is brand new. Um, it's going to change things. AI has been around for so many times. We've had many winters, many false starts. Uh, this one's interesting. I think the reality is we're going to determine that we do not have enough data to make precise decisions. A lot of this is going to require training and augmentation for it to get to a level of comfort that we'll be able to work side by side with machines. So back to you, Lala. I'm just hoping you don't replace me with a <laughs> no, no, we will end up replacing ourselves because, you know, some, some chatbot, some, some AI, some general AI is going to come and say, oh, yeah, this show is kind of interesting. Maybe we'll just replace them with different names and yeah. uh, people we'll, that look like this. Maybe we'll have uh, a chatbot as a guest uh, at some point and we can just oh, prompt I might be able to arrange that. I might be able to arrange that. Let's, let's that. see the answers. <laughs> so, uh, well, hey, next, thank next you. Next week, uh, we have... An incredible show, uh, futurist and authors. We have Kathy Hackle, futurist author of The Augmented Workplace. We have Caitlin McGregor, CEO of Plum. And we have Heather McGowan, author of Empathy Advan Advantage. Three extraordinary people next Friday. If it's Disrupt, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Happy Friday.